Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we'll again be reading the first three verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Amen, dears. You may be seated. Today we finally break into the third chapter of 1 John. There are only, in this great little book, five chapters, so we're moving along quite well. It is, I'll remind you, a general, if you will, a Catholic epistle in the sense that it was distributed by the Apostle to the Church generally, or the Catholic Church, which is the universal Church of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you have given us words like these in your holy book that direct us to the Logos, the Word of God who became incarnate and dwells among us even today, the Lord Jesus Christ, the center of all things. We pray that you would bring us to Christ Jesus and feed us him in this preaching of the gospel and in the sacrament, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I was recently struck by something one of my great old dead buddies, John Calvin, wrote in his monumental Institutes of the Christian Religion, the best systematic theology ever written in the history of the world, let alone the history of the church. In explicating the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, which we just uttered a little while ago, Our Father who art in heaven, the great reformer penned this. And I quote him, No greater feeling of love can be found anywhere than in the love of a father. And I was really impressed by that. And I think there's truth in it. In fact, John Calvin could state this based solely on the authority of who God is as the fount or author and ocean and universe of divine, perfect, infinite love. And Lord willing, we're going to be fleshing this out very soon, even in the doctrinal section of our sermon today. Now, the words that open the third chapter of 1 John are some of the most tender ones to be found anywhere in Holy Writ, Old Testament or New. And therefore, in light of that, in those words, let us make it our gospel goal this Sabbath day, this Lord's Day, this Resurrection Day, to love the Father who, gives, who loves us in Christ and by the Spirit. With this in mind, we're going to be studying 1 John 3, 1 through 3. And if you've got an outline, this is where we begin. The love of the Father, first the doctrine. Elect children are begotten, B-E-G-O-T-T-E-N, through the love of the Father. Now, it's very biblically allowable for us to make this claim. In fact, we may say with total confidence that Every human being that God the Father loves covenantally or redemptively is begotten of him. 
spiritually and scripturally, and I'll back that up with a text later in this sermon, plus the whole context of these verses and the rest of the Bible support it. And this is universally accomplished, that God begets all his children, and he begets them in love. And that's a beautiful thing. So without further ado, let us pursue this most magnificent doctrine that elect children are begotten through the love of the Father, who eternally begets his own unique son, Christ. And of course you see those references there. So there is one natural son of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and all the rest of us who are in Christ Jesus as his church are adopted children, sons and daughters. Now we just confess this truth that the children are begotten through the love of the Father who eternally begets his own unique son in the Nicene Creed. We just said as much. And do you know that in Isaiah chapter 42 at verse 1, Christ, God the Father's own Son, is called his chosen one? Quote, unquote. So election, in a particular sense, even applied to the Son of God in his incarnation, his, his messiahship, his being the anointed, the Christ of God. He is eternally begotten. Of the Father. But he would also be begotten into this fallen dead world, this dark world that we also were begotten into. And we call that his incarnation. We'll be celebrating that in a few months at Christmas time, Advent, whereby he became forever and always both God and man, which he is now in his body in heaven. And we will sit with him soon at the table of the Lord to sup with him. Now, the fact that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father implies no inferiority of the Son to the Father or the Holy Spirit in terms of his and their essential divine beings and common substance or essence. In the role of the servant... In his incarnation, in his humiliation, the suffering human Messiah, Jesus did submit to his Father, and in a certain sense, even to himself, as well as the Holy Spirit, in his divine nature. It's very interesting and important theology. This is why in the aforementioned Nicene Creed, we just confessed our belief that Christ is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And it's beautiful Trinitarian doctrine. So Christ, even in his eternal divine nature of one substance with the Father and the Holy Spirit, is the eternally begotten Son of the Father, though he is not the eternally begotten Son of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about these relational distinctions, that's exactly what they are. But none of them touch on the absolute essence of the nature of the Trinity and the three persons being completely equal. In complete unity, it disrupts it in no way. And everything they are and everything they do as the persons of the Holy Trinity are done in complete harmony, and it's all in love. Elect children are begotten through the love of the Father. 
who eternally begets his own unique son, Christ, and who temporally, T-E-M-P-O-R-A-L-L-Y, begets his own chosen sons and daughters, his church. Now, when we say temporally, this has to do with time and space and creation. And we are in no way impugning our election and predestination before the foundation of the world, as the Bible clearly teaches in Ephesians 1, Romans 9, and many other places. Instead, we are simply acknowledging another astounding truth, that though we are all conceived in sin, rebellion, hatred for God, complete animosity toward all truth, in time and space, that condemnation... That destruction, that damnation that hangs over us is thoroughly ameliorated and taken away by the justification that is imputed to us by the unspeakable grace of God in the gospel where we are legally declared to be righteous based on the righteousness that Jesus Christ attained in his death and resurrection and then it is applied to us the elect members of the church of Jesus. And I would reference for you this loving God, Romans 5, 8 through 11. Now in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 23, we read these remarkable words. Now notice how the Father begets us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his own great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And that's not just the preached word or the written word, but it ultimately is the word, the divine logos, the second person, Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, all of you elect and redeemed Christian churchmen today who believe in Christ and love God in Christ Jesus and who are able, by God's preserving grace alone, to keep faithful in your church vows in your covenant commitments, which is required, of course, to even come to this table, you have been begotten by God, your heavenly Father, and you are the objects of his infinite, perfect, comprehensive love. Let's look at these exciting verses, 1 to 3, chapter 3, 1 John, and marvel at the glorious Tenses of the love of the Father, T-E-N-S-E-S. Now, I admit that I'm not using these tenses in strictly literal and universal ways. There is some overlap and sharing of them amongst each other in the three verses we'll study this morning. Ever since God created the universe, he has condescended to us, ordained to come down to us, put the cookies on the lower shelf, in that his eternal plan and decrees are rolled out to us in terms of time and space because we are created beings and that's how we have to operate. And in actual fact, from our point of view, they really do come to us in a sort of consecutive order, even though for God all of this is an eternal present. So let us now, as God's beloved church, greatly appreciate the glorious tenses of the love of the Father. First, the past tense, 
justification in Christ, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, why are the churched people to whom John is writing, and remember I told you it's not a particular church, but more or less the universal church, even down to us today, why are those people called, quote, the children of God as per this verse? Because in his indescribable and wonderful love, God the Father with the Son and the Holy Spirit has made us his children. He has begotten us into his church, his family, his kingdom. But just how did this great and amazing miracle and marvel ever occur and come to be? Essentially in the following ways. So here's a a brief view of all of reality in a few moments. First, in eternity past, there was what we call the covenant of redemption. And in the covenant of redemption, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit all understood and agreed on how redemption of yet to be created and even yet to be fallen, human creatures made in the image of God would be restored to him after their sin. The Son would suffer, the Spirit would apply, the Father would be over it, if you will. Although all three of them are in complete and total harmony. And this would be accomplished through the incarnation and substitutionary atonement and resurrection of the second person, the Word of God, Christ the Lord. Also, in eternity past, now whether we put this in the covenant of redemption or in another situation, which is for us sort of time-constrained, but of course for God there is no time. He lives outside the space-time continuum. And time is only a function of the creation. So this is all occurring before God ever created. But in eternity past, some, in some way, The Blessed Holy Trinity elected and predestined to grace and glory those specific human individuals who would be the recipients of the Son's vicarious sacrificial satisfaction and atonement for sin so that none of the blood of Jesus would be wasted. It would go to those whom the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had chosen. Then after the creation of the world, And after the fall of man, Adam, into sin, the Holy Spirit applies to the hearts of the elect the merits and full effects of Christ's atonement. Now this last step is what we call regeneration, where the Holy Spirit comes upon a dead, lost, rebellious heart, and that comes with a wonderful package, and included in that of eminent importance is justification, the declaration that those sins of that sinner are remitted, because of the blood Jesus shed for them, suffering on their behalf. It's a beautiful thing. So why, as per the balance of verse 1, does the world no longer, quote, know us? Why is it that we're aliens and strangers in this world, as it were? Because, as the Apostle John himself says, they did not know him, Christ. They do not recognize us anymore. The closer we get to Jesus, the more conformed we are into his image as his church, from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, 
the less the world is able to recognize us. But that's okay. They did not know or recognize the Messiah when he came into it, and they don't know and recognize us. But we still shine that light, are the salt and light of the world, and love the people in the world, according to God's perfect will. The glorious tenses of the love of the Father, the past tense, justification in Christ, the present tense, sanctification in Christ, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that is Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now the sanctification process is what we're in right now on this Lord's Day. And it's not an easy one. In this regard, though, notice the incredibly encouraging words that open verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now that's a huge blessing, isn't it? Because we do not need to be fully, quote-unquote, fully sanctified in our own personal walks with Christ in order to be called God's children now. We sort of touched on this in our Christian education up here this morning. It's not like we have to have everything completely solved in perfection in our sanctification walk in order to be called God's children now and in order to properly minister in truth and integrity the gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus as his church. And the sweet reason that this is the case is because all regenerated, justified Christian churchmen are already fully sanctified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would reference for you 1 Corinthians 1.30. So the balance and bulk of verse 2 is teaching us that we are not yet what we will be, and also that when these bodies of ours, these very bodies, not some other body, but these bodies are transformed or resurrected on the last great day, the great day of judgment, the day that Christ, quote, appears, unquote. On that day, our eyes, these very eyes, will be able to behold the glorified body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our bodies themselves will be, quote, like his. Now this is the doctrine of the resurrection of the body here. In the meantime, though, where we are today, we slowly but surely, inexorably and consistently, sometimes three steps forward, two back, four forward, three back, we do Lord's Day to Lord's Day, sermon to sermon, sacrament to sacrament, prayer to prayer, fellowship to fellowship, Lord's worship to Lord's worship, Sabbath to Sabbath, grow more and more into the image of Jesus in our sanctification process. And the way that's done is by ingesting the manna of God, which is the person of Jesus Christ, the bread and wine of life, without which there is no life at all. Jesus Christ himself must be eaten, as it were, and his blood must be drank. And we're going to celebrate that in a special way Lord willing, in a little while. And this happens in the preaching, the sacraments, and prayer, the means of grace. 
The glorified tenses of the love of the Father, the past tense, justification in Christ, present tense, sanctification in Christ. Finally, the future tense, glorification in Christ, verse 3. You probably saw that coming, where we read, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, the language of purification reminds me of glorification, though if it also makes you think of sanctification, that's only because you are astute theologians and very, very um, on the ball. Also, I had told you earlier that these verses overlap. So, according to the New Testament, there are two senses of glorification in the faithful, Christ-loving churchmen in the church militant on earth. The first one is what we call current glorification, as we are even now in the glorified and risen and reigning Christ, the Word of God, as per Romans 8.30. So that verse and others are teaching us that we're already glorified because we're in Christ. And so if you're in Christ, you're glorified. Because there's just nothing missing in Christ. You're as glorified as you are justified and sanctified in that wonderful sense. But there's a second way of speaking of glorification in the New Testament, and we probably mostly associate this with the word. And that is the finalized state of our currently resurrected souls with our to-be-on-the-last-day resurrected bodies as per Romans 8 again, this time at verse 17. So in the very same chapter, Paul gives us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, both ways of glorification. And this is a future, this will be the the great last day when all bodies are raised, some unto life and some unto death. Before we leave verse 3, though, let's notice the faith-driven hope that has a purifying effect on us. What does faith and hope propel in us? Well, it propels love in us. And this brings us full circle back to our Heavenly Father, who in verse 1 of this text had shown us wondrous love for us, his children, in Christ Jesus. Well, here at Redeemer, we like to do a little more application. So let's do that this morning and embrace why love is the chief feature in the Father's dealings with us, his children. C-H-I-E-F. Chief feature. Are you not glad that that's the case? Every well-taught Christian churchman, every saint, is truly happy that this is true. Otherwise, God would, in our minds, principally be relating to us on some other primary basis. And again, when we talk about the attributes of God, they all coalesce perfectly in him. And even though that is true, they are a unified whole. They're not really divided. It's just our way of understanding. The Lord does allow us, I would say, even biblically, to conceive of his love as being the ground of his transaction with us, his church, especially here on earth. So therefore, let us now further explore why love is the chief feature in the Father's dealings with us as children. First, because love defines the nature of God. You know, twice in this little epistle of 1 John, the apostle of love, the son of thunder, John, 
straight out says that, quote, God is love. He, and it's on your outline there. It's 1 John 4, 8 and 16. So in the same chapter, he says it twice. And Lord willing, sometime we'll get to that down the road. You know that John could, with just as much justification, have written, God is justice, God is righteousness, God is power, God is truth, God is eternity, God is infinity, God is perfection, but instead he communicates two times, God is love. Now someone might say, understandably and rightly so, yes, that's true, but does not God's love have different manifestations? And the answer to this is yes, it does. But here is the comfort for all and any who will by God's grace alone and actually because of his sovereign regeneration believe in Jesus Christ in the context of hearing the gospel preached. You, they, anybody in that state possesses God's electing love if it's real and if they are blessed enough to be members of a faithful church they may even know and have assurance that they're the objects of God's electing love. If that isn't the case, that's much more difficult to achieve. It doesn't mean they are not the objects of God's electing love, but the more faithful the church is, the more clear the vision is of that reality. So it is a blessing to know it. No one will have any excuses on the judgment day because we all get, in terms of what we want with relationship to God, what we will to have. The will is the problem. So everybody gets exactly what they will to have in relationship to God. Everything and everyone. Nevertheless, and irrespective of any creature, elect or reprobate, it is still totally true that God describes his character as that of love, and that is who he is. Why love is the chief feature in the Father's dealings with us as children? Because love defines the nature of God, and because love characterizes everything God does. Sometimes I think we Christians, and perhaps especially we Calvinist or Reformed Christians, are tempted to lose sight of this most glorious truth. But in reality... We, the ones who by grace believe and accept God's written words' insistence on his absolute sovereignty and decrees, should learn to understand that these are very true manifestations of his universal love, the universal love of God, even though it is demonstrated in different ways to different people. So what I'm saying is, we especially, as those who believe in the gospel, in the word of God, the Logos, the Son of God, the benefits of the covenant, the grace of God, the gospel, we should definitely understand that everything God does is done in love. Do you know that God's righteousness, justice, truth, and even judgment are all, in fact, expressions of his perfect love? Having said that, God's covenant love, his redemptive love to his elect church, of which his son in his humanity is also a member, as the head, that love is singular and special. And there can be no denying that. But who among us would want to deny that? We would not want to deny that. Because except for that gracious love, we would be lost, dead, condemned, 
sinners. So having scoped out the landscape of creation and trusting God's self-description given uniformly throughout all of his scriptures, including here, we may and should boldly state that everything our perfect and good triune God does is loving. And the greatest expression of his love was the cross of Jesus, where his own pristine, perfect, beloved, wonderful son was sacrificed for rebellious, unworthy sinners who would have nothing to do with God at all, despite the sacrifice, if God didn't apply this covenantal electing love upon us, because we would never have looked to him otherwise. This is how wonderful and gracious this God is, that the blood of the Son of God would be shed, not for good people, not for smart people, not people smart enough to figure it out and choose him, but for sinners like us, who would be dead, lost, and completely under his condemnation. Beloved, the love of the Father has led us to believe in the Son of the Father. Forever and ever we will rejoice in the love of the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we'll rejoice in the love of the Father. See what love the Father has? He's made us children of God. You begot us into your own church, Lord. We didn't have anything to do with it any more than we had anything to do with our own natural births. We thank you that you did it, and you did it for your own glory and honor. We don't understand why you did it for us. We certainly didn't deserve it, didn't seek it, but you sought us out and you made us your children. We thank you that you did that through your only begotten Son, the second person, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.